This is Radiance Tape Number JD-122, a message by Jim Durkin, entitled, God's Secret of Prosperity. I'm going to minister on a subject that I don't often minister on directly, and that is the subject of giving. We minister on it indirectly. We've basically taught people to give. It's been an extremely generous ministry and a giving ministry. However, as more and more people now are moving into their own homes or as the ministry continues to extend its broader base so that it's reaching different kinds of people from different backgrounds, many of them are without instruction as to how to give when they are giving from the sense that the entire amount of whatever money they earn or what comes their way is given into their hands. And many of them are ignorant as to what God has to say on this tremendously important subject. I would caution each one of you, depending on your personal backgrounds, against falling prey to any preconceived notions about the subject. Many people are very emotional about the subject of giving. They think it's a great offense to people. It is to some. But uh, that is only because those people have no understanding of God's teaching on this particular subject. They are also, in many cases, very emotional about the subject of money. And uh, to them it's something they profess in many cases to have no love for but in fact they have a great deal of love for it, and so they are very disturbed when anyone brings up the subject of money, especially the idea that any of them should give some of it. So this has to be dealt with. It's a part of the human mentality, which is our natural inheritance from this world of sin, that as sinners we are takers and not givers. We give only when we see it is strictly to our advantage to do so, and then grudgingly we would get out of it if we possibly could. In other words, if we could receive without giving, that would be the thing that we would gladly do. Uh, but we do have to give, even in this world, it's forced upon us one way or another. We must give to our government in the form of taxes. Many people do not like to do this at all. But scripturally, we're told to do this where it is proper. We have to give in many, many cases to even maintain ourselves socially. If we, for instance, do not give it birthdays or other remembrances which have become customary in any particular society that you're in, you'll find very soon that you'll be a social outcast. Uh, they're just, that's expected to do. Meet a friend on the street, say, come on, let's sit down, I'll buy you a cup of coffee. It's a type of giving. He may or he may not buy it back for you, but in fact, if he does not buy it back to you, you probably will not buy him the second cup. And uh, so it kind of works out that way. But even in this society, there is a kind of enforced giving. But God wants to bring us to a place of giving that is not an enforced giving, but a different kind of giving altogether. That turns us from our natural inclination, the old life, as takers to where we become givers. And not just givers in the sense of, well, I have to do it, so I will do it, but rather we become abundant, cheerful, joyous givers. All right, now... I've entitled this series, God's Heart and Giving. See, giving is tied into God's heart. It's not something God says, you ought to do, I don't do that. The very heart of God is being expressed in giving. Therefore, if we take on the heart of God, we must of necessity take on the aspect of giving. The two things absolutely tie in. You'll see this all through Scripture. Now, I'd like us first to look at the basic 
moral law. Now, there is a law which undergirds all commandments, all laws, all teachings, all statements by God. And if you can understand that everything that is in the Word of God, except those things which, for instance, just to speak about factual situations, but everything that concerns morality, how we should live, how we should think, how we should feel, how we should act, all of these things are encompassed in what could easily be called the basic moral law of the universe. It is the nature of God expressed. Now, if you'll turn with me to Matthew, the 22nd chapter, and we'll start at verse 35. And one of them, the Pharisees, were testing Jesus. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. That means of all the commandments that could be given, this is the great and foremost commandment. But he adds another one. He said the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now let's go over these two commandments because they concern themselves with the basic moral law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. The King James Version says, on these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets. Now, in other words, before the law and the prophets ever existed, there was a moral law which extended back to the beginning of time and existed back before that. So, because it was always a part of the heart of God, that any of God's creation that would exist, anything that God would bring into being, one law would be ever the same, that that creation, all of it, was to love God with the whole heart, soul, mind, strength. And the second, any of God's creation, was to love the neighbor as it loved itself. Now that is God's intention. And in the garden that he planted in Eden, it was that way. There was no slaughter, no brutality, no murder, no crime. That law reigned. And where that law was supreme, no other law need be given. It was enough. That law was understood. Now when sin came in, however... Then the law had to be explained and extended so that men could understand because now their minds became clouded, their spirits became twisted. It would later wait until a conversion experience through the coming of Jesus Christ until the spirit could again be born again, born anew, and the mind by the process through the Holy Spirit, the Word working on it, the mind could be renewed, the soul could be trained. But in the meantime... Commandments are given which are designed to give us a right understanding of what to do. All right, now, but if you can understand this basic moral law and everything in Scripture that is given is merely an expression one way or another of that basic moral law. Now, it concerns two things only. And remember, everything in Scripture says basic principle. Everything in Scripture concerns only two things. Love toward God and love toward man. And everything that speaks says that. And every disobedience that man will ever perform 
will concern itself with only two things. His refusal to love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, or his refusal to love his neighbor as himself. And both of these things will lead us into destructive attitudes and methods and works and actions that are contrary to what God wants for our lives. All right. Now, 1 John 4, 8. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now, let's go over that. The one who does not love does not know God. See, he may have met God through Jesus Christ, but he doesn't know him. If he acts contrary to that principle of love, he does not know God. For if he really knew how God was, his idea of God may be altogether different. His idea of God may, well, I can do this because if God were here, he would tell me to do the same thing. But it says, the man does not love, does not know God. Not really, see. He may profess that he does, but in fact he does not. And in truth he does not. Now, that principle led to an expression of something. We have to see how love expressed itself in God. What does love do? Does love merely set up in heaven in the form of God and just kind of beam joyous thoughts outward? Or does it kind of just smile and just, mmm, mm, I love, I love. Is it an intern thing? Is it a mental attitude? Is it some kind of an abstraction that has no physical manifestation or direct manifestation that people can see? No. Love always expresses itself in giving. And the demonstration of the truth that God is love expressed itself as revealed in John 3.16 where it says God so loved the world that he did what? He gave. And that's the key word that you need to connect with the idea of love. God so loved the world that he gave. Now, in our minds, until we are trained to see it, we might consider money far more valuable than the giving of Jesus. But the Bible said that we could have been redeemed with corruptible things like gold and silver. Certainly that would have been done. But we could not be redeemed. We had to be redeemed by the greatest treasure that heaven itself had. God gave his only begotten son. God gave all that he could give. And that is the expression of love. Now we need to connect in our minds carefully that love and giving go hand in hand. They are not the same thing, but one is an expression of the other. Love will always express itself in giving. Now, I say once again, the normal mentality of mankind is he says, I want to be loved. Very seldom does he ever think about, I have to love. He says, if people would only love me, then I could. If people would only, then I would. It's always like if someone else would do something, then I would. But God's love is the kind that says, I love, therefore I give. And he gives, knowing that the great majority of people receiving that gift will spurn it, despise it, reject it, and have nothing to do with it at all. And yet, that kind of love keeps on giving and giving and giving. Because that's the heart and the nature of that kind of love. See, as opposed to the kind of love that says, if you give to me, I will give to you. That kind of love. All right. Now, John 3:16. God so loved that he gave. Love always impels giving. And giving increases 
with the increase of love. Now, there's no increase of giving with God because God is total and perfect love, but I say to us as humans, as we increase in love, we increase in giving. That's a foregone conclusion. And you find a man that is not giving, and primarily I'm going to be dealing with the subject of material possessions, you find a man that is not giving, and you find that man in a very unloving state of mind. You just, you mention the subject giving, oh, I just feel I don't have to give, and I don't feel anybody ought to push me, and I don't, see, my, so you know, it's like, you say, Lord, help me. I'm tired of getting pushed by you, always wanting me to help you. I'm not going to help you at all. See, no, you go to God. I don't care whether it's day or night. You know, you go to God at night, midnight, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning. God is like, oh, I've been working all day, 9 to 5, and now you hit me up on my... Nothing like that. See? But now, if we're not careful as ministers of the gospel, as people of God, somebody come to us in the middle of the night, say, I need help. Say, man, come around 9 o'clock in the morning because that's when I go to work and I need my sleep. And I... But as love increases, we look at that situation and say, that person needs help. I'll get to sleep somewhere. Can I help you, brother, sister? And we begin to respond with love. See, as love increases, giving increases until we come to the place where we're willing to lay down our lives for the brethren. Okay, now understand that principle. Now, I'm going to take us on a little trip through the Bible here. I'd like you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians 9, 7, because God is trying to and working to transform us into a kind of attitude toward life. So 2 Corinthians, the ninth chapter, and the seventh verse. Explains what kind of a giver God wants us to be. Let each one do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Now, the good deed, obviously, is continued giving that he's speaking about here. As it is written, he scattered abroad, see, gave it away, he gave to the poor, his righteousness abides forever. Now notice this connection here. We'll see a principle later on that I'll bring you back to this perhaps, or at least to the principle. He scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness abides forever. Now what kind of a giver does God like? Would you say it with me, please? Cheerful. Yeah, a cheerful giver. Now, I want to explain to you something, and I will use that here. This word comes from a couple of Greek words, and it means a readiness of mind, joyful, hilarious attitude. In the Septuagint, the verb hilaruno translates a Hebrew word meaning to cause to shine. I want to turn to a couple of more here in a moment, but I want to go back over that. I think it's important you understand it. The word cheerful giver means readiness of mind, joyous giving, hilarious giving. Now, can you picture a man giving compared to one giving grudgingly or of necessity? Now, grudging, giving is, well, okay, here. Necessity is like this, where some of the old-timers used to preach, that if you don't give your tithes and your offerings, God will break your arm, give cholera to your hogs, and you will die. <laughs> Giving of necessity. 
Now, God is not interested in this kind of giving. Though, believe me, in a sense of the word, it is better that you give that way than you give not at all. Because at least it's a first step on the road to giving, and something you practice long enough simply because the word says to do it, at least will move you along the road toward the time when you will come to the place where you are a cheerful giver or hilarious giver, one of ready mind. And the word here means, the verb translated as cheerful in the King James, really means to make the face shine, glisten with oil. All right. Now, one example of this to be found in Scripture, many of them, but I've picked just one here. Turn back to the Old Testament book of Exodus and the 25th chapter. Now, we'll start at verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall raise my contribution. And this is the contribution which you are to raise from them, gold, silver, bronze. They're planning to build a tabernacle here now. Blue, purple, scarlet material, fine linen, goat hair, ram skins, dyed red. These are very expensive items, by the way. Porpoise skins, acacia wood, oil for lighting, spices for the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense, onyx stones, setting stones for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. Now go back here to the second verse, and let's get the idea of it again. Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall raise my contribution. Now this is, as we will show later, was what was called a free will offering. There was another type of giving called tithing, which I'll explain in its proper place, but here was a free will offering. Now turn over to Exodus 36 and see the result of this. Verse 1, Now Bezalel and Aholiab and every skillful person in whom the Lord has put skill and understanding to know how to perform all the work in the construction of the sanctuary, shall perform in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. Then Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab, and every skillful person in whom the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him to come to the work to perform it. And they received from Moses all the contributions which the sons of Israel had brought to perform the work in the construction of the sanctuary, and they still continued bringing to him free will offerings every morning. And all the skillful men who were performing, all the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work which he was performing. And they said to Moses, the people are bringing more than enough for the construction work, which the Lord commanded us to perform. So Moses issued a command, and a proclamation was circulated throughout the camp, saying, let neither man nor woman any longer perform work for the contribution of the sanctuary. Thus the people were restrained from bringing any more. For the material they had was sufficient and more than enough for all the work to perform it. Now you see the concept here of abundant and joyful giving. They were building a sanctuary to their God, something that they had heard from the mouth of Moses, and God said, I wish to have a contribution from them. Now these people at this point, their hearts were set to do the will of God. And what is the result of it? They come with an abundance, so much so that Moses had to say, stop giving, it is enough for all the work and more besides, stop. And the people said, but I wish to give, and I wish... So, can't do that now. We'll be another place later on, but this is enough for now. You see, there's a joy here in this kind of giving, as opposed to the kind of giving which says, oh, who'll give a dollar? <laughs> oh, here's 50 cents. Who'll give 50 cents? I'll give a quarter. See? God is not looking for that kind of mentality in us. God is looking for the kind of mentality which says, 
joyous, abundant giving. Now, the purpose of God is to transform us into abundant, cheerful givers, joyously sacrificing, if need be, that God's purpose on this earth may be carried out. Now, the reason why those people in that day abundantly gave, they saw as God's purpose to build that tabernacle. It's a clear thing. Their limited minds could not understand all that you can understand today because you have been converted through the incoming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your vision has been enlarged by the incoming of the Holy Spirit. You have a much greater revelation of the Word of God than those people had. They only had the Ten Commandments at that time, and a few other things were being given to them. But basically all they had is that prior revelation which was passed on mouth to mouth and so forth and so generation to generation, which had fallen into much disuse and now was just coming back into an understanding. But here you have this broad understanding. But even those people, when they understood the purpose of God was to build that tabernacle. Now, many of them could have said, because I say the tabernacle was a very expensive thing that was being built. It was very expensive for two reasons. One, the people were limited in their ability to obtain these things. They had received things from the Egyptians when they came out of bondage. They gave them gold and silver and jewels and furs and so forth. And they came out with those things, but they needed to carry those things into the promised land in order to get a start there when God should give them that land. That was their thinking. would have been the thinking of any of them. And yet it comes time to build a tabernacle. And this tabernacle, when it's laid out, is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Inlays of gold, overlays of gold, and bronze, and silver, and beautiful furs, and ram skins dyed red, and beautiful things. Now, it would have been very easy to reason... Well, let us not spend this much money on this. We'll need this money later on. We better think of our old age. We better think of our future. We better think of... But you see, when man is taken up with the purpose of God, that is not his concern. His trust then is that God will take care of him. God will bless him. God will prosper him. God will care for him. God will watch over him. But now God has given into his hands the wherewithal to carry out the purpose of God on the earth. And so he abundantly gives toward that purpose. And here they were bringing and bringing and bringing of their possessions and their treasures. Out in the middle of the desert they were. And they were bringing their treasures to build this tabernacle. No thought of, well, shouldn't it be made cheaper? Couldn't we reduce it here? Couldn't we put a little bit thinner gold on? Couldn't we put less here? Couldn't we do less here? They were saying, here, 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 build it. Like God wants it. Here's enough and more and more. And Moses had to say, stop. We have all we need. And still they were coming and bringing. And you see, the mentality. All right. The purpose of God, again then, is to transform us into abundant, cheerful givers, joyously sacrificing if need be, that God's purpose on this earth may be carried out. Now there it was to build an earthly tabernacle. Our work is to preach the gospel in all the earth. Our work is to cover the earth with his glory. Our work is to bring unity to the church. Our work is to reach the poor, the lame, the maimed, the halt, the blind, the crippled. Our work, see. Now, we need to be transformed into that kind of giving if we are to accomplish that purpose on this earth. God uses two methods to produce in us an intelligent understanding and application of this truth. Now, he uses these two methods to produce in us an intelligent understanding and application of any truth. So here again, we're dealing this morning with principles alone. One, commandments which are designed to show us God's way. Now, turn with me to John 8, 31. I'll show you that principle in Scripture. Jesus, therefore, was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word... 
then you are truly disciples of mine. Now see, Jesus said, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. But John, later on referring to this, said this is a new commandment, but it's an old commandment. Why, of course, it was the basic moral law itself. See? It was a greater law by far than any of the laws which came after. Those laws merely explained or helped to give some understanding to people of limited understanding how to express that great moral law, how they were to act in relationship to each other, and most importantly, how they were to act in relationship to God. But Jesus said, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. You're truly wholehearted followers of mine. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So the commandments of God, one side. Now, let's take a look here. Another one, Matthew 7. See how important this basic concept in God's mind is. Now, verse 23, Matthew 7, verse 23. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. No submission to any law of God or man or anything else. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, and burst against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it was founded upon the rock. Now, what was the rock? Now, of course, we could easily answer, but it would not be quite correct. We got, well, Jesus was the rock. But what in truth was the rock at this point? What is he referring to? The rock was really what? Yes, doing of the word. He that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them is like a man who built his house upon the rock. See, that's the establishment. So it's hearing God's word, his commands, his orders, his directions, and doing them. All right. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. Same thing, he heard the word. The only difference was what? He elected not to do it. He said, well, I hear that. That's nice. He may have even said, I believe it. But whatever the reason, doesn't say he wasn't capable of doing it, doesn't say anything about he tried but he failed, had nothing to do with that, just said he didn't do it. Okay. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and burst against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. The result was that when Jesus finished these words, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, and not as their scribes. Of course, he was the Son of God, and he had an authority from God, like we have an authority from God, to speak the word of God with boldness and truth. All right. Now, the second principle by which God establishes truth in us is found in Second Peter, the first chapter. Verses 2 to 11. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these, by these what? Well, let me read it to you. For by these he has granted to us precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, you see now how the promises of God, working with the commandments of God, are producing something in this 
person. He is not only hearing promises, he is acting upon them and carrying out what God wants him to do. The result is a transformation of character in his life. Perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, Christian love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Therefore, I shall always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you know them. All right, now, let's draw again. What are the two methods God uses to establish in us his divine nature? What are they? Say it. What's the first one? His word, his commandments, his teachings, his truth. And what is the other? He has promises. See, this one incentive, this one direction, incentive. All right. Now, I am particularly concerned in this series with the proper handling of material possessions as far as giving is concerned. Now, there are many other types of things we could get into here, spiritual things and so forth and so on, in the sense of like prayer or fasting, which is a type of giving. As a matter of fact, a very important type of giving. Or laying aside... Uh, day a week to the Lord. Uh, many people uh, do not understand that seven days a week working and taking no time off will never be right in the sight of God because Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, and man needs that Sabbath day. He needs a day of rest. He simply cannot sustain himself seven days a week with no time off to give to God. He cannot do that at some point. It may be you get away with it in his younger years. I'll tell you down the line, just like Israel, they did not give a sabbatical year to God for a number of years, and then they went into captivity, and they made up exactly that number. The land lay fallow for exactly that number of years until those sabbaticals were made up. And a good many people in their later years, instead of being in vigorous good health, are paying the price of laying in bed, not one day a week, but seven days a week for years on end, because they did not pay attention to the necessity of taking a day off and resting so their machinery can rejuvenate itself again. My elders that have come up under our ministry, I've told them, take a day off. Some said, well, I'm so busy with the work of God. And I said, I want to tell you, if the work of God is going to collapse because you take one day off, something is wrong somewhere, you take a day off. And I suggest to every one of you, rather I speak the word of God to you, six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh, that's a day of rest. It's the Sabbath. God, the Bible said, he finished all the works which he did, and on the seventh day he rested. So, you know, God set an example for all time to us. And it is not a proper thing, brethren, to day after day labor. There's a time when you're to stop laboring and give that day to God. All right, but that's a different type of giving. We'll deal with it perhaps at a different time more particularly, but it's good to hear it as we go along. But we're particularly concerned with material possessions here, specifically money or its equivalent. I want to notice some things about this. First point, there are kinds of giving shown in Scripture. And one is the kind of giving which I say is giving with the expectation of receiving. All right, now that type of giving is mentioned in Scripture and is perfectly proper in its right context. Did you have it? Giving with the expectation of receiving. However, it says only one thing about it. We have our reward. You have that? When I give, 
with the expectation of receiving. That's not condemned in Scripture, unless that's the only kind of giving I do. Then, boy, the Lord gets on that pretty heavy. But if that's a type of giving I do in relationship to others, that's permissible and commendable. But when I give with the expectation of receiving, I have my reward. There is not a future reward to be obtained when the person gives back to me. In other words, I get what I expected. That's my reward. And that's what I aimed at. All right. Now, a second type, directed or specific giving, concerns itself with what the Bible calls tithes. Now, tithes simply means one-tenth. The word simply means one-tenth. So, if I receive $100 and I pay tithes, what would the tithe of $100 be? One-tenth, ten dollars. So you give $10, that's the tithe. Very simple. It's always a percentage. doesn't refer to a specific amount, merely a specific percentage. And then what the Bible calls free will offerings. Now, sometimes these free will offerings are directed specific types of things. The Lord says, give a free will offering to me for this. Or a free will offering was taken for this specific purpose. Then there are other free will types of offerings. There are non-directed free will types of offerings. And they come under a different category. That's the third type of giving. Non-specific directed giving. You direct it, but it's non-specific. One that would be to the poor. See, a poor person, you give something to them. To the alien or the stranger. Now, we don't see that so much in our own land, but there would have been a time even in America where there would have been a very common thing, people coming over from other countries and trying to get started and just no foothold at all. And you remember that... The Israelites were once a stranger in the land. How God dealt with them when he told them, remember the stranger, remember the alien, remember. And we would give to them to help them get on their feet. And then I listed down here other free will offerings. For instance, you might have been particularly blessed of God. And somehow he blessed you with an inheritance or he blessed you with a good business transaction. He blessed you with a good year. Your fields bring forth abundantly or whatever. And you just say, I want to give to God. I just, God didn't say to do that. But he just, oh, I'm. Fear God, to your work, and I... See, it's just non-directed, but it's that abundant type of giving. All right, three types of giving then. Giving with expectation of receiving, you have your reward. Two, giving to God tithes and free will offerings. Third, that non-directed, random type of giving, wherever the need is, all three types must be working. See, now the problem is sometimes we get into one kind, not the other. Say, I give my life to the world's pool of work. Well, that's right. But that's one type of giving. But you also get back money for that, and you spend it on yourself. Therefore, you have your reward. You gave with the expectation of getting. You did get. You spent it upon yourself. You have your reward. One type of giving. But a person can't say, I'm laying down my life. That's not laying down your life. That's merely, if you didn't lay it down that way, what would happen in 24 hours anyhow? That much of your life was laid down anyhow. So you can't say, oh, I'm really doing this. No. The reason why we're doing that is we want the reward that comes from it. All right? Lay that aside. Perfectly proper. I'll explain this proper place. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not evil. It's not something like, oh, man, you're just out there trying to get bucks. Me, I don't do that. I just lay around and do nothing. That's why we've always taught this ministry here. You don't work, you don't eat. You've got to learn to work with your own hands. It's important that you learn those principles. It's important that you work that discipline into your body and mind where you will give yourself to that kind of thing so that the other more important lessons may take place in our lives. All right. Then the second type has to do with what the Bible calls tithes and offerings. Read scriptures concerning that. And then that non-specific directed giving. You have to the poor, the alien, the stranger, and just that abundant type of giving. Here's the premise that I wish to bring to you. 
primarily to show God's people, A, the right attitude toward giving. Now, we've discussed that a little bit. But the one giving is not a burden but a blessing. Now, there are many people who don't understand that. They say, oh, God wants me to give. I want to tell you that giving is a blessing. I wish to tell you that giving is a joy. I wish to tell you that giving is a thrill. It's a satisfaction. It's a There's so many wonderful things just in the act of giving that I do not understand why God promises all the abundant rewards. Because if anything were true, it would seem like you have your reward right then and you have the right attitude toward it. Because you've given to a person in need, or you've given to the Lord, and you just then you see the work of God going on, you say, Oh, thank you, Lord, it's wonderful that I could do that. See? But in that kind of giving, God promises to do something fantastic. To open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, there should be no room to receive it. If you understand how to properly give. He says, I will make you so that you'll be blessed in the field and you'll be blessed in the city. You'll be blessed in your down-sitting and your uprising. You'll be blessed in your going in and your coming out. You'll be blessed in the fruit of your womb. Your cattle shall increase. Your some of this tremendous abundance that is a result of proper giving. See, But I say, from my point of view, I stand back and that's the marvel of grace. God pours out on us unmerited favor and yet he says, but if you do these things, I will also abundantly bless you even more, and in heaven, great will be your reward. See, it's a marvelous thing. And many people are cheated by the devil because they never understand that kind of giving. See? Now, the third type of giving, in some ways, every bit as important as the second type of giving, but it is not proper unless we do the second kind of giving. Third type of giving, to the poor, the alien, the stranger, so forth and so on. All right. Now, giving, therefore, is not a burden, but a blessing. Two, money or possessions or giving is not an emotional subject except in a positive sense. That is hilarious giving. That's why I used to speak to the folks in the early days at the ranch. I'd speak to them about money. And some would say, oh, man, we don't want to hear about money. I'd say, yes, you do want to hear about money. Very important that you hear about money, because money is a very important part of getting the gospel preached in the world. See, it is not something like, oh, man, money, that hellish doctrine again. The Bible is literally filled with very specific directions about money. It tells you you should prosper abundantly, speaking about money. It tells you you should give abundantly, speaking about money. It's telling you you should support the eldership, that's speaking about money. It's telling you you should give to the apostolic work, speaking about money. It's telling you you should bring offerings, speaking about money. See, the Word speaks about money all the time. Or not all the time, but much of the time. Very, because it knows that money, the love of money being the root of all evil, it's a very emotional thing with people. And it's hidden under all kinds of guises. Oh, no, we're only thinking about the gospel. And we're only thinking about what's right. And we're only thinking about what's good. And we just uh, we don't want to talk about money. But what they mean is, in most cases... There is an underlying covetousness, and when you touch that subject and say, give abundantly, it's like, see, and that whole nature just, I don't like to talk about that subject. Why not? It's a very real subject. Oh, talk about love. Okay, let's talk about love. That implies giving. Now, here's how you give. Just a minute, brother, I, see, get you right back to it again. All right. Now. B, we want to talk about the proper method of giving, that is tithes and offerings. 
and C, who are to receive the benefits of the giving and why. In every case, God's ministers were specifically mentioned. Now, this is also a sore point with some people. should not be at all, but it is with some. Secondly, alongside also God's house is mentioned. That is to be built, is to be maintained. God has some very heavy things to say about letting his house fall into rubble heaps in the Old Testament. And when Hezekiah found out about this and saw what the law had to say about it, there's tremendous revivals. They got the house of God cleaned up. The doors were falling off the hinges and broken down. And I see our carpet is getting torn up here. That's not a good thing. Somebody ought to take it on themselves right now to repair that carpet and stop any further damage. So it's not right to let God's house deteriorate. Now, it went that way for a long time, but now God has blessed the place where there's a prosperity. Well, we should take diligent care of the substance which God has given us to go on. I give you a word of warning here and a word of admonition. Okay. And third, the poor are also mentioned. Now, if you turn with me to Luke 6:38, we'll deal as quickly as we can with the idea of giving with the expectation of receiving. Luke 6:38 says, "Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, they will pour into your lap. For whatever measure you deal out to others, it will be dealt to you in return." Now here, the word of God is speaking about giving in the largest sense, but primarily with the expectation of receiving. Give, and it shall be given to you. Good measure, heaped up, pressed down, shaken together, running over. King James said, will men give into your bosom? This version says, others will give into your bosom, but the principle being the same, that I give and others will give to me. Now this primarily concerns itself with the principle of business, because in business... Every businessman that is successful realizes he must give, or at least he must seem to give. He can promise for a while to give fantastic bargains, which in fact are no bargains at all, but if he continues to do that, he will certainly lose the customers he has. And unless he's some kind of a business where he can just continually get new customers and get rid of the old ones and cares nothing for them, sooner or later he will be out of business. He cannot continue not to give. He must give that which the person is satisfied to receive and satisfied to pay for. And wherever you find a business that is a success, you will find that that business is finding a need, and they are filling it, as one worldly philosopher said, or to give exactly what the Bible says they are giving, and others are giving back to them, good measure, heaped up, pressed down, running over, men will give into their bosom. I think you go to a place like McDonald's, hamburgers, that is a typical example of a business that gives what people need. Now, there's some that may not like McDonald's hamburgers at all, may even hate McDonald's, and they say, I can't stand the place, I don't like the buildings, and I, that has nothing to do with my personal feeling about it. Go by there any time you wish to go by there, and there's people just buying hamburgers and eating them and french fries and so forth. Now, obviously, that they go back there week after week and month after month and year after year, and they build more, and they build them in foreign country. You go over there and say, where's McDonald's hamburgers? I want to feel at home, and, uh, you know, see... Now, why do they do that? Because it is a principle which they've established of giving, and it's a, a reasonable bargain, a good bargain, whichever way you want to look at it. People are content with it. They go back again and again, and so McDonald's has grown very huge. Give, and it shall be given unto you, not equal measure, but good measure, heaped up, pressed down, running over, shaken together. Men, give into your bosom. That's the principle of God. See, remember, you have your reward. McDonald's does not have a reward in heaven because they have a hamburger stand. See, okay, they have their reward in that they obtained money for that.
friendly giving or social giving, where it is strictly from the social point of view. Favors given and received, for instance, meals, coffee, babysitting, etc. I'll take care of your child tonight. For you, you're going out. That implies when I go out, you will take care of my child. Say, all right, you have your reward. That's the reward. When you exchange, you now have your reward. Friendship may grow out of that also, and that's an additional advantage, but it's not a particularly heavenly thing. Now, B, God wishes to bless this activity so that other more important lessons may be taught. And so he does bless our social relationships he wants to, whether that be between Christian friends or unsaved friends. God wishes to bless those interchanges and those favors and those relationships, your business dealings, so that everywhere you may be abundantly blessed in these matters. Prosperity is considered a godly blessing to the upright man. Poverty is always considered a curse in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, there are some little differences there. I'll read to them in a moment. But the curse is either the result of sloth, which most of it is. We do not deal with a diligent frame of mind. We deal with a slack hand. And, of course, the principle is like we're lifting someone up from over a cliff and we're pulling up on a rope like this. And if we deal with a slack hand, what will happen to what we're pulling up? Slide through our hand and be lost to us. But the principle is we're not to deal with a slack hand. We're to take hold of that rope with all of our might. The Bible says another place, it says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. So with your work, do it the best you can do it. I've always tried to minister that principle. Be the best you can possibly be in whatever you're doing. Don't be satisfied, oh, well, I'm good enough to get by. That's good enough. It is not good enough. Be the best you possibly can be in the work that you're doing. Think about your work. If you're giving, think about giving. If you're in authority, think about your ministry. Whatever it is, give yourself to it. That you may be the best possible testimony that you can be in God. All right? It is a curse either of sloth or the lack of knowledge. Both of these are amply shown in Proverbs. The Bible says, my people are destroyed for want of knowledge. Many people simply do not prosper because no one ever showed them how. We are doing our best in this ministry with godly men that God has raised up, I believe, and they've given their gifts freely. And by the giving of those gifts, our people are learning to prosper. We desire you to prosper. That is a proper thing. But only so that you may learn more important lessons. Not so that you may get money and stuff it inside of yourself and say, it's all mine, I'm going to keep it for myself, and I deserve it all. You deserve nothing except hell. We have been saved by the grace of God, which is unmerited favor. If I obtain prosperity, I do not deserve it. My prosperity is a result of the fact that God has given me a good mind. He has given me a strong body. He has given me truth which has been revealed to me. He has also put me in a propitious time where I have been blessed. And so my prosperity has grown as a result of that. If you prosper, the same thing will be true of yourself. It will never be that I deserve it. The Bible says if you have anything, what do you have that was not given to you? See, but sometimes we get the bragging on ourselves. Oh, I got this by my own might. You know, Nebuchadnezzar did that, and God said, I'm going to teach you a lesson. And he turned insane for seven years. He said, now I see it's God. You know, okay, so keep that in mind. But nevertheless, poverty is a curse. It is a result of either sloth or lack of knowledge, and both are amply shown in Proverbs. There are two other reasons that are able to be looked at somewhat differently, and they are sickness, a disaster, could hit your home, broken back, so forth. But even here, God offers healing, but I realize that not everyone gets healed, and I do not know the reason for that. I wish I did. And persecution could be another one. You've taken joyfully the spoiling of your goods. Maybe you're a prospering government comes along and says, you're Christians, we're going to take everything away that you have and leave you with nothing. That kind of poverty is not true poverty in the sense of the word. That kind of poverty is the result of God allowing an action to come upon you that you may glorify God in that persecution. All right. You pretty well understand that kind of giving.
There's no need to go on with that. You've got to learn how to do it. It takes a lot of learning, but that's a part of it. You have your reward. That's the point that I want to make about that. Part number five, directed giving. God has not left us without very clear revelation here. It covers what he wants us to give, why we are to give, how we are to give, and to whom we are to give. He's not left us without any guesswork in any of these areas. Now let's go over it again. He covers what he wants us to give, two, why we are to give, three, how we are to give, and four, to whom we are to give. See, giving is never like, I just throw the money up in the air and it's wafted away by the Spirit, and that's why always there's an objective in the giving itself. All right. Now, a look before the law is given. I think we need to see if we're going to understand the principle of giving. We cannot just go to the law. There's a certainty of prior revelation. For instance, when the law was given, men were not told to keep the Sabbath. When the Ten Commandments were given, many people say, keep the Sabbath day. But the law does not say that when it was given. Does anyone remember what it did say? Yeah. It said, remember the Sabbath day. Now, why do you think it said, remember the Sabbath day, rather than keep it? Well, because they had already been practicing it, and he merely incorporated that principle into the law. See, it had existed before, now he incorporates it and brings it along. So he said, I want you to remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Okay. Now, there was a prior revelation if he said, remember, though you cannot in the Old Testament anywhere before the law put your finger on a place where it says, keep the Sabbath day. No commandment is given, yet here we find men doing it. So when the law is given, God merely says, remember it. In other words, incorporate it into what you're doing. That's a proper principle. Continue it on. And then he extended some other ideas that were peculiar to the Jewish time. But that Sabbath being made for man was incorporated because it had to be there. The man did not change. He still needed a day of rest. He still needed a day of recuperation. He still needed a day to devote to God and to his family. It's a proper thing in God. All right. So this prior revelation existed, and we're told to remember the Sabbath day and so forth. Now, so it is with the subject tithing. Now, though there was no place recorded in Scripture of a specific command to tithe, that is to give the tenth, yet Abraham and Jacob both understood this principle. Now, they were way before the law. Abraham 400 years before the law, Jacob sometime less. All right, now let's turn to Genesis 14:20. Understand this way back before the law. No commands were given that are written that we can see. And yet these men understood this principle. Genesis 14, verse 20. We'll read back a little bit. Verse 17 is where we'll start. Then after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer, Laomer, pardon me, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him tenth of all. And then that's reaffirmed in the New Testament, where Paul himself refers to it. Consider how great this man Melchizedek was, that even Abraham the patriarch gave him tithes of all. And that word all is going to be an important understanding because the way tithes were given today in many cases is not a proper understanding either. Now turn me to Genesis 28. And 
Verse 16, Then Jacob awoke from the sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on its top. And he called the name of that place Bethel. However, previously the name of the city had been Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me on the journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house, and of all that thou dost give me, I will surely give a tenth to thee. Now, this is long before the law, long before any codification of that principle at all, and yet Abraham and Jacob both understood it, and I'm certain also that Isaac did and the other patriarchs. All right. Now, I want you to see a general principle about the reason for all giving when rightly done. Would you turn with me now to Proverbs 3rd chapter, verse 9 to 11? And this is a great general principle again, but it's important to understand it here before we move into the area under the law. Proverbs 3, verses 9 to 11. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. Now, please notice, honor the Lord where? From your wealth, that's all that you possess, and from the last of all your produce. No, the principle is from the first of all your produce. See, it isn't I will pay my bills and if I have any money left over, I will give it to the Lord. But how do we honor the Lord? By giving the first of all of our, the King James says, the first fruits of all your increase. It's a good way of putting it. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. My son, now notice this wording here, the reason, my son do not reject the discipline of the Lord. Now, what is giving? It is a discipline of the Lord. Don't reject it, nor loathe his reproof. In other words, when we don't do it, then he reproves us. Now, he says what we should do, we should honor the Lord from our wealth, giving, and from the first of all our increase. The result, so your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will overflow with new wine. Now, again... Tying it into abundant prosperity. Very important to understand that principle. Now back to tithing. It was instituted in the law and more fully explained. I won't read all of the scriptures that concern tithing in the Old Testament. They're just numbers. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, many of them. But a couple or three I think will be very important to see here as we carry this through. Let's turn to Second Chronicles 31. 2 Chronicles 31, verses 5 and 6. And we're going to read on down to 14. As soon as the order spread, now the order that spread here was that they were to refurbish the house of God. It had fallen into decay, terrible condition that existed in these particular times of the kings. And as soon as the order spread, the sons of Israel provided in abundance the first fruits. We're back to that principle again. Of grain, new wine, oil, honey, and all the produce of the field, and they brought in abundantly the tithe of all. And the sons of Israel and Judah who lived in the cities of Judah, also brought in the tithe of oxen and sheep and the tithe of sacred gifts which are consecrated to the Lord their God and placed them in heaps. In the third month they began to make the heaps and finished them by the seventh month. And when Hezekiah and the rulers came and saw the heaps, they blessed the Lord and his people Israel. Then Hezekiah questioned the priests and the Levites concerning the heaps. Heaps of goods piled up. 
And Azariah the chief priest of the house of Zadok said to him, Since the contributions began to be brought into the house of the Lord, we have had enough to eat, with plenty left over, for the Lord has blessed his people, and this great quantity is left over. See the same thing back in the Old Testament, remember when they started to bring for the tabernacle, once they caught the vision again, they caught the purpose, and here they come in with this abundance. Then Hezekiah commanded them to prepare rooms in the house of the Lord, and they prepared them. And they faithfully brought in the contributions, and the tithes, and the consecrated things, and Conaniah, the Levite, was the officer in charge of them, and his brother Shimei was second. And then names a number of names here. And Benaniah were overseers under the authority of Conaniah and Shimei, his brothers, by the appointment of King Hezekiah, and Azariah was the chief officer of the house of the Lord. And Koray, the son of Imna, the Levite, the keeper of the eastern gate, was over all the free will offerings of God. So here's the tithes come in, and then free will offerings in addition to that, to apportion the contributions for the Lord and the most holy things. And under his authority goes on to describe. So when the people of God came back, Hezekiah began to reestablish the worship that his father had put down. He has it put down and done away with. Now Hezekiah is reestablishing those things. And he goes and looks at the house of God and sees it broken down and ruins and the Levites and the priests are not giving themselves to the law because they're out having to earn their bread continually and they're just out, see, because they had no inheritance. They were given no capital whatever. The people of Israel were to take care of them and to watch over them and to make sure that their work could continue mightily in God. And so they were given no inheritance, whereas the people of God working in their own private businesses and they had great amounts of land given to them. Many of them built up and became very wealthy if they practiced the right principles. But now the land had long since given up taking care of the sabbatical year. That is six years they were to till the land. The seventh year it was the rest. It was an honor to God to let the land rest and restore itself. They had stopped doing that. They were working seven days a week. They had no time for worship to God. They were giving no tithes and no offerings. The house of God fell into ill repair. The Levites and the priests had to get out and work, but there was no place for them, for they had no inheritance. They had no capital to begin with. A very difficult situation and a very bad time for Israel. They fell into terrible, terrible sins under Ahaz. As a matter of fact, he broke down the house of God and cut up the vessels in pieces and threw them away. And a terrible, terrible man. Now, Hezekiah comes and he's reestablishing that. And one of the first things he tells, he says to the people, begin to give tithes and offerings that we may restore this place. And he said then, now the priests are able to say, the house of God is being restored. There is an abundance. We build rooms to take care of that. And we are able to eat and devote ourselves again to the law of God. See, once again, under Hezekiah, Israel became a great nation because he reestablished those principles. One of the major ones was the giving of the people to support the work of God. All right, turn to Nehemiah, the 10th chapter. I think we will go up here to verse 32. Same situation under Nehemiah. People had been in captivity for a number of years. Now they were rebuilding the house of God and they were rebuilding Jerusalem, establishing its worship. Priesthood was being put back on its feet again. The Levites were beginning to function properly. We also placed ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, for the continual grain offering, for the continual burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moon, the appointed times, the holy things for the sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel, for all the work of the house of our God. They're explaining what they have done now, so Nehemiah can hear it. Likewise, we cast lots for the supply of wood among the priests, the Levites, and the people in order that they might bring it to the house of our God, according to our Father's household at fixed times annually, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as is written in the law. And in order that they might bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree to the house of the Lord annually. 
and bring to the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, the firstborn of our herds. You remember Samuel was the firstborn, and he was brought to the temple, and therefore he became a priest in the house of God. The house of God, the firstborn of our sons and our cattle, the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, as is written in the law, for the priests who are ministering in the house of our God. Now, verse 37 and 38. We will also bring the first of our dough. Now notice this first principle again. Our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the new wine and the oil, to the priests at the chambers of the house of our God, and the tithe of our ground to the Levites, for the Levites are they who receive the tithes in all the rural towns. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes. And the Levites shall bring up a tenth of the tithes to the house of God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the sons of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of the grain, the new wine, and the oil to the chambers. There are the utensils of the sanctuary, the priests who are ministering, the gatekeepers and the singers. Thus we will not neglect the house of our God. And that concerned itself with physical giving, money, the increase of their vines, the increase of their trees, the increase of their grain. You go out and someone gives you a gift says, here's an orchard, reap it down, it's yours free. That should be tithed upon, offerings given besides that. Somebody blesses you with a gift, that should be tithed upon. That's a principle. The first fruits of all your increase, that's a principle, must be deep in our hearts. And it must not be there grudgingly of necessity, but it must be there with the principle of a cheerful giver. Now turn, please, to Malachi 3.8, and we see God's application of truth when the Israelites did not carry out his principle and his truth. And he argues with them. Verse 7 is where we will begin. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. I speak as Moses led the people across the wilderness. Abraham did keep them, and Jacob did toward the end of his life. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, this whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Now that goes back to that situation where the house of God was broken down and in ill repair, and the priests of God and the so forth and so on were out trying to scrabble around, trying to dig up something or beg for a living and so forth, instead of giving themselves to the law and offering sacrifice to God and meeting the needs of the people. It's a different situation here. God says, change that, turn it around. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so there may be food in my house. And test me now, and this says the Lord of hosts. Now, here we come to promise and commandment again. God says, return to my commandment and hear my promise. Here's the command. What was the command? Who can tell me? I just gave it to you. Bring the tithes and offerings, the whole tithe, into the storehouse. The promise now, prove me now herewith, or test me now, and this says the Lord, if I will not open to you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until there be no room to receive it. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it may not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine and the field cast its grapes, saith the Lord of hosts. And all nations will call you blessed, and you shall be a delightsome land, says the Lord of hosts. Now in another place, the Lord was speaking about those who had built their own sealed houses first, and this house lie waste. He said, you have planted much, but reaped little. You have brought home your wages in a bag filled with holes, you did expect much, but I did blow upon it, and it was gone. 
See this principle of abundant giving, bringing the tithes and offerings and doing the proper thing toward the house of God and the work of God and the poor and the lame and the maimed and the halt and blind is absolutely tied in with the blessing of God upon our lives for our more abundant. See, it's because it's attitudinal. If I say, I won't do that. See, then I am tied into myself as that stingy, covetous type of person. The Bible says a covetous man is an idolater. He, he worships money. That's his whole thing. My money, I will not give that to anybody. Whereas on the other hand, he says, this money is God's, and I honor him. See, isn't it marvelous? God gives us everything we possess. Everything we possess, God gives to us. You know, a man builds a house, let's say a log cabin. He says, look, I built that cabin by myself. God took a tree and it grew maybe for a thousand years. And he cut it down, and then he cuts it up, and he builds his house out of it. And he adds maybe, took him a month to build a house, log cabin. One month against a thousand years that God spent giving him all the materials. And then the strength he had to build it, God keeps his heart pumping, he keeps his brain working, he keeps his hands strong, he teaches them the skill. And the man says, look what I did all by myself. No, that's a totally arrogant, erroneous thing. That's why in the next verse here, where God is dealing with this subject, he said, your words have been arrogant against me, saith the Lord. They said, we've done this by our own strength. We pay tithes. Not only had they done that, but when they did give an offering to God, he said, bring to me the firstborn, and you shall keep it up, and it shall be without spot and without blemish. And what they had now started doing is going out and saying, well, that's too good to give it an offering. God understands. So they took the firstborn without spot and without blemish, and they would put it aside, and they would take something ring-straight or diseased or broken or blind, and they'd say, this is good enough for the Lord, because he understands. We're going to keep the good one for ourselves, because God understands. God said, that is not what I told you to do. Reverse that. Give me this. And... He said, now, he said, let me ask you this question. He said, if you bring to the governor the blind, diseased, and ring strike, he said, will he receive it from you? He said, I'm greater than your governor. Bring to me the best that you have, not the worst. Okay. Now, in the book of Matthew, come to the New Testament times, or that is the times of the Lord Jesus. won't be New Testament until he raises from the dead and puts into effect the Testament. But you see what his confirmation is toward these things. Matthew 23 Verse 23, just one verse. Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, mint, and dill, and cumin. See, when the Pharisees now came back in Nehemiah's time, they established an organization called the Pharisees. And they were determined to keep every point of the law. And they did to the letter of the law, except they began to establish a whole number of other ideas, traditional things that they put in there, which qualified the law and finally, in effect, did away with the law as far as really carrying out what God said. But he said to them in this case, he said, Woe be to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. See, they said, look at that, don't you see, we're tithing, we give this money here into the treasury. He said, you do that and have neglected the weightier provision of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are things you should have done without neglecting the other. Now, do you notice what he says? These are things you should have done, justice, mercy, righteousness, but without doing what? Without neglecting the other. You see, person says, oh, well, I, I give justice, righteousness, mercy. Jesus said, that's fine, you should have done that. But don't neglect this too. Now he got on the Pharisees because they were giving this and this. They see we pay tithes. He said, yes, but you forgot justice and mercy. And, see? In other words, what is necessary? Both. Act in justice. Walk in righteousness. Extend mercy. Pay tithes and offerings and free will offerings and give to the poor, the lame, the maimed, the halt, the blind, the alien, the straight. Give. 
Another person says, well, I'm a paying Christian, I'm not a praying Christian. There's no such thing. Another one says, I'm a praying Christian, I'm not a paying Christian. There's no such thing. There's no person in this world that cannot give a tenth of that which God gives them and offerings beside. The person says, man, I just get a little bit, I can't afford it. That's when you need to give it most of all. If you ever need the windows of heaven opened on you, that's when you have nothing. See, as a matter of fact, I'd take a chance if you have absolutely nothing, I'd throw it all in. Say, Lord, here I am, I don't have a thing, open the windows quick. See. Amen. Well, I've done that, and it's been a good thing. Now turn with me to Hebrews 7, and then we'll end up this lesson for today. Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7, verse 5. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who receive the priest's office have the commandment in the law to collect the tenth, there's the tithe again, from the people, that is, from their brethren, although they are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And in this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on, the eternal Christ himself. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek, who being a type of Christ, met him. And the final thing that I bring to you this morning is that all giving is finally giving to who? Giving to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his eternal Father God. Now let me sum up a lesson for you and I'll take much more time to explain this next Sunday when I'm back as to how to give and to whom to give. But let me tell you this. Begin to think about it. God requires these things then of you. One, that you be a giver. Secondly, he is leading you to the place where you shall be an abundant, cheerful, hilarious, face-shining giver. Third, he tells you how to give. That is the method of giving. That of all your increase, you shall honor him with it, and the first fruits of that increase you shall honor him by. Then he tells you the percentage that you shall honor him by, certainly you shall take a tenth both before the law, during the law, after the law. And I think it probably will continue even into the new realm into which we are entering, that that will probably be more fully instituted than ever, that people understand that is a way of bringing, giving, glorifying God. There will be certainly no need to support the saints at that time as they will be immortal, and yet the giving to God will still continue an absolute thing, I do believe. But nevertheless, in this age, it is clear we are to give first our tithes, then a free will offering, in addition to that, certain specific directed things may be, for instance, the building of the house of God or helping people on the foreign field or whatever it may be. There may be all kinds of things. We're starting a new work someplace or some specific work that the church is beginning to help the school out that our children can be blessed. All kinds of things a free will offering could be taken from. No one specifically is pointed out. If a person is the place at that time they can only give a little, they're not required to give ten or a hundred or a thousand dollars. If they can only give a dime, that's all they can give. But to those who can give abundantly more, they can't look at the person who gives a dime and say, well, that's all I'm going to give. That's all he gave. If God has blessed you greatly with finances, then give abundantly with finances. One man could give a dime and another man give a thousand dollars, and yet neither one has given more than the other. 
Now, see, in this carnal world in which we live, we say, well, the man who gave a thousand gave way more than the man who gave a dime. He gave a hundred thousand times as much, or ten thousand times as much. That is not necessarily true. It depends on the necessity laid upon that person. That person who gave a dime may have been giving so abundantly and completely, that really is all he could finally give. The person giving a thousand may have been able to give ten thousand times ten thousand and not even noticed it. So, you cannot judge who gave what. See, and sometimes we get to say, oh, thank God, brother, so-and-so gave a dime. Oh, you gave a dime? <laughs> thank you, brother, thank you. See, that kind of carnality in a church stinks to high heaven. I'm going to tell you, a free will offering knows exactly what it says, a free will offering. Let him give according as God has prospered him. And then the third type of giving all around you are opportunities to witness for Jesus Christ by giving. The Bible says, make to yourself friends by means of the mammon of unrighteousness. Use your money to make friends. Use your money to help people. Use your money to bless people. Use your money to build up people. Use it. It is a proper tool in the hands of a non-covetous man or woman to build up the kingdom. Now, on the back, we have an offering box. We do not run an offering plate. If we have to do that to help teach you, I don't mind doing that. But I hope you're coming to a place of maturity in Jesus Christ. See, a person says, oh, I forget that box every time. I just go out there. I don't even think about that box. Well, now, that's not proper. Now... Every time the first of the month comes, I remember to pay the bills that I have to pay. Well, I don't do it anymore. My wife remembers to pay the bills I have to pay. Those bills have to be paid. See, let me show you how you should do this. When a person gets a paycheck, if he's going to give to God the first fruits of his increase, what should he immediately do? Here he's got his money. He's laying out there. He's 100. Now, this is the way we used to do it. I used to go get my money. I'd make maybe $100 a week. That was quite a time back. Got to make it more after that by far. But in those days, $100 a week. And we went and cashed it. And I got the whole $100, and I laid it out there. There it was. And you know what the first thing I did? I took $10, and I laid it aside, and I said, God, that's yours. And then we took some more money for an offering, and I laid it aside and said, that also is yours, Lord. And the balance, we said, we're going to pay bills out of this. And then we divide it up. We put it in different envelopes. We say, this for gas, this for this, this for this, this for this, this for food, this for... We had it all laid out. And then when I was out of an envelope, I didn't go in the other envelope. It was just empty. That's all. We got by the best we could. We ran out of gas. I called up a brother and said, our friend, said, would you take me to work today? Or would you come and get me for church? And I'll come and get you. And we'll make that up and so forth. So you're giving and receiving, that type of thing. We began to work on a very disciplined budget. But that first fruits of my increase, Daisy's increase... It went to God. Now, for years, we didn't do that. For years, we had all the arguments that everyone else has. We need for a water heater this week. My car needs tires. I need this. And I'm going to tell you something. I got to the place where I didn't hardly have a car or any tires, a car to put them on or any tires to go on them. And I didn't have any money for a water heater. And things kept broken and blowing up on me. And nothing ever worked out right. Nobody understood me. And I just, one miserable mess after another until I began to put God's principles to work in my life. Now today we're able to give considerably more than a tithe, and I thank God for the opportunity to be able to do that. See, God has blessed me just like he said, I will bless you abundantly. I remember laying 1242 Williams where Roger Robinson lives today, and I was in the upstairs. We had the whole house at that time. It's now two apartments. We had the whole house. I was upstairs in the bedroom laying there asleep one morning. I was just meditating on God, and I tell you before God, as you might judge, the ceiling of that house opened up just like this, just opened wide. And I began to see coming through that rooftop just packages, bundles, blessings in every direction just pouring out. And the room was literally filling up. I said, oh, God, what are you doing? He said, I'm opening windows of heaven and pouring blessings upon you. And I tell you something, God has never ceased to pour those blessings upon me because I practice his eternal word. Now, I say to you that are living on your own and you're working, you want God's blessing in your life in this area and every area. When you get 
your money, I don't care whether it's little or great. Sit down, immediately take a tenth of it, lay it aside, hold it up to God and say, God, I honor you with the first fruits of all my increase, the tenth of all, it is yours. Set aside an additional amount as God lays upon your heart as a free will offering. Give that to church. Give that to the work of God. Now, I'll show you next week exactly what you're to do with it. But get right in your mind now. I'm going to start paying my tithes. I'm going to start giving offerings. I'm going to let this blessing work in my life. I'm going to become an abundant, cheerful giver. This gives you all week long now to think about coming to church next week being a cheerful giver. So you'll go through all kinds of things. You're going to sit there and look at that. If you're in 200 a week, that's $20. Lay in there another 10, let's say, for a free will offering, $30. And you're going to say, well, I could have bought a tape deck with that. I could have bought 14 new records with that. I could have bought a new coat with that. I could have bought a get over that and say this God has given me everything I possess he took me out of darkness and brought me into his marvelous light he changed me if you're married look at your wife and say he's given me a wonderful wife if you're a woman look at your husband you're married and say God has given me a wonderful husband if you have children round about you and God is blessing you that way look at your children and say thank God for these wonderful children that God has given me I am going to honor God with the first fruits of my increase. Amen? Amen. Amen.